Christ the Lord is risen today. Thanks again, Rebecca, and thanks too for Joe for helping uh, with the recording of that. That's the great event that we celebrate today. In fact, truth be told, it's the great event that distinguishes Sunday. It's why we worship on the first day of the week. But this particular day, Easter Sunday, I want to preach to you again about the resurrection. The title of my message today is The Lynchpin of Christianity. Admittedly, we have read only a brief selection from Acts chapter 26. The whole chapter really is is a record of Paul's great defense that he made before Agrippa when he was given the opportunity for to speak uh, for Christ before the king. But if we were to consider this particular defense, one of the things that I think would be abundantly clear right away is that the resurrection was really the linchpin. It was really the centerpiece of Paul's message. You don't just find that here. In fact, you find that really in so much of what Paul did, and you find it in the epistles as well. His constant reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the centrality, the absolute indispensability of that event. Take, for example, back a few pages, chapter number 24, when Paul was addressing Felix. So you remember Felix was the first Roman governor that Paul was imprisoned under. He was succeeded by Festus. Festus is the one who, along with Agrippa, hears the discourse that's given in chapter 26. But back when we go to chapter number 24, and uh, Paul is speaking to Felix here, notice verse 14, he says, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the, both of the just and the unjust. Then you go back just a page before that, to chapter 23, when Paul has the opportunity there to address the Jewish Sanhedrin. What an occasion that was. But boy, you certainly don't get very far into that before you figure out that the resurrection was the linchpin of that address as well. Paul regarded it as the very linchpin of Christianity. So, for example, if you have your scripture there, look at Acts chapter 23 and verse number 6, where Paul says this, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question before you today. Well, I want you to think for a minute about that title, Lynchpin, because uh, we know more about that than maybe we think. It's, it's kind of become more of an expression to us today. A linchpin we know is something without which uh, the event that we're talking about or the thing that we're talking about really doesn't hold together. But it's quite figurative or, or quite expressive, really, when you think about its past. I want you to think maybe about a wagon for a moment or even a wheelbarrow you have out in the yard. But think about an old wagon. And then you look at that and you find that those wheels were held on that axle by what was called a linchpin. So if you keep uh, or if you look at a, a close photo of something like this, you're going to find uh, the the wheel, and you'll see in the middle of it the axle. So there's a hole there in the wheel. The wheel fits over the axle. And then what's to keep that from coming off the axle and the wagon from just kind of crashing down on the side? Well, it's a linchpin. And if you look at the picture of this carefully, you'll see that there. So in other words, without the linchpin the wheels of the wagon would fall off and the wagon would fall to the ground and the wagon wouldn't go anywhere. 
You know, beloved, I want you to think about this today because this is exactly what the resurrection is. Resurrection, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. Without the resurrection, the wheels of Christianity would in fact fall off. And so using Paul's address to Agrippa, I want to use that as sort of a, a, a leapfrog in order to touch base with it, but then to branch out into three reasons why that statement is true. Why exactly it is that the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. First of all, I would say this, the first of three, three thoughts here this morning, and that is that the resurrection proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus was genuine. Jesus is genuine. Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. You know, it's, it's interesting, really, when you listen to people and you hear them talk about Jesus, and you find that so many people try to split the difference. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, they really don't want to go so far as to confess that Jesus Christ is who he said he, he is, because that then sort of puts you under uh, the necessity of dealing with Jesus. It's a lot easier, and you hear this a lot, it's a lot easier to say when you ask, uh, when people are asked what they think about Jesus, well, he was a good man. Well, he was a great teacher. But, you know, they haven't really thought that through very well. That's just kind of a feel-good thing that a lot of people tell themselves. So they they lead themselves by that to kind of put Jesus aside and figure out, well, you know, there are a lot of religious figures in history, and Jesus was certainly one of them, and Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a good teacher. But you know something, as I say, they have not really thought too deeply about that. Here's why. In the first place, Jesus himself cast aspersion on that argument. Do you remember the day that Jesus was uh, speaking to the rich young ruler? And we find this back in Matthew chapter 19. But when Jesus was speaking to the rich young ruler, uh, the rich young ruler came to him and he said, Good master, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in Matthew chapter 19... And verse 17, here's the response that Jesus gives to him. He says, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but God. In other words, look, if I'm not who I say I am, I'm not good. Well, there goes that. People talk about Jesus as a good man. People talk about Jesus as a good teacher. But, you know, the thing about it is, while those things may be true in and of themselves, Jesus does not allow us to stop there. He claims to be so much more. And I think that C.S. Lewis uh, probably has one of the most noteworthy and famous expressions of this. It's his, his so-called trilemma. Tri means three. And so uh, sometimes we, we summarize this by saying that Jesus was either a lunatic or he was a liar or he is in fact the Lord of heaven. He is in fact exactly who he claims to be. Here's the way Lewis put it. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell, in other words, a liar. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
Well, Jesus emphatically claimed that he would rise from the dead. He did this on many, many occasions, and if you are acquainted with the Gospels at all, you know that this is true. Jesus many times uh, was attempting to teach the disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer there, to be betrayed, and to be crucified, and to rise again the third day. But Jesus did not limit that teaching just to his disciples. Jesus confronted his antagonists with that teaching as well. So, for example, you have a, a, a good example of this in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, and uh, this is a well-known verse, actually, but Jesus said to them, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three d- nights in the heart of the earth. He was alluding, of course, to his resurrection on the third day. It seems when you turn over to John's Gospel, chapter number 2, that Jesus may be even a bit more explicit there. John chapter 2, you'll want to consult with verse number 19, and I'm going to read that for us. But again, Jesus is having interaction with his opponents. They've called him on the carpet about his cleansing of the temple, and Jesus says this to them in demonstration of his authority. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, what do you do with this type of thing? Jesus either is who he says he is, and he is the Son of God, he is the Lord from heaven. He did, in fact, prove that by rising from the dead on the third day, or he's none of those things. So, if you think about it, and this brings us right back to the Easter story, Matthew is the one who preserves this detail for us, that this, is, this was precisely the argument of the Jews following the resurrection. All along, they were, they were basically rejecting him. All along, they were, 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 were feeling that he was an imposter. But Matthew gives uh, verbalization to this in his account. Uh, when Jesus rose from the dead and the stone was rolled away on Easter Sunday morning, and the Jews did not know how they were going to contain this, we're, said, we're told in verse number 63 of Matthew chapter 27 that they went to Pilate. Here's what they said. Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Well, you know, you have to give them at least this. If Jesus said those things, which he obviously did, and if he did not rise again on the third day, he truly was a deceiver. And Now to bring this back to Acts chapter 26 and what we see with the Apostle Paul, there's something you really have to notice about this because when you analyze it, we didn't take the time, I understand that, I'm sorry for that, but in the interest of time, we didn't take the time to read the entire account. I'd love to see you go back and do that later. But here's what you'll find. When you look in Acts chapter 26, you find that sandwiched in between Paul talking about his past And Paul talking about his present, right in the middle of those two things, he gives testimony to having met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Look down at Acts chapter 26. Let me just at least give you some idea. He was talking about his past in the earlier part of the discourse. So in verse number 7, for example, uh, Acts chapter 26, I'm sorry, not verse 7, but let's uh, look at verse 9. Uh, He says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus 
of Nazareth. And he goes into a, a litany of some of those things. He describes himself as a, an enemy of the church. He describes himself as a persecutor of the church. In fact, I really find verse number 11 interesting. He even says that he went so far as to punish them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. <clears throat> Here's something that might help out a little bit. Has it ever bothered you when you've read that verse and it says compelled them to blaspheme and we think, did the, the, did the early Christians surrender their faith so easily? And something that kind of comes to our uh, aid and help here is a little, uh, a little insight into the grammar of this, where Paul is using the imperfect tense. And the grammarians will often refer to this, this is a technicality, but it helps. And the gram, grammarians will often refer to this as what's called a conative imperfect. Conative means you're attempting to do something, and so the effort was repeated. If we allow for that here, and I think that's probably the best way to take this, what this verse is saying as Paul talks about his past is that this was part of what he was trying to do. He was constantly trying to compel. He was trying to compel. He was trying to force the Christians to blaspheme. Well, then if we go past where Paul's talking about his, his past and we get to where Paul is talking later, about his present. He's talking about the ministry that he has. He's a completely different person. Now, instead of being a persecutor of the church, he's its foremost advocate. He's its foremost missionary. What changed Paul? That's why I say, well, you have to look at this and see that sandwiched between his, his story to Agrippa about those two things, his past and his present, he talks about meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. So look down in your Bible, and here's what he says, whereupon, verse 12, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining up round about me and them that journeyed with me. And when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Paul was confused. He asked a question, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. In that moment, and hearing those words, he all of a sudden knew that Jesus was no deceiver. Jesus was no imposter. Jesus was no blasphemer. He was exactly who he claimed to be. And when Paul is giving this testimony, when he gets to the end of it, he says in verse 19, as he relates it more to his present now, Whereupon, O king Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Did you notice in that verse, the last verse there that I read, he mentions Damascus. We don't have uh, any account here. He doesn't elaborate on what he did there in the synagogues at Damascus with King Agrippa, but he certainly does in the story in chapter 9. And if you go to chapter 9, let me give you a moment to turn over there. It's probably worth looking at this uh, for yourself. But when you go over to John or, or to, to Acts chapter uh, 9 in the story there, he says, and straightway, it says, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues. 
that he is the Son of God. And then in verse 20, but Paul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is truly, that this is very Christ. So what was he saying? He was saying that immediately, he told Agrippa, immediately after I encountered the risen Christ, and he doesn't get into the stories here about uh, Ananias and being baptized, he simply points out that his life dramatically changed. He was 180 degrees opposite. He was no longer the persecutor of the church. He became its advocate, even in the face now of persecution himself. He went to the synagogue in Damascus. He immediately began to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is truly the Messiah. And you remember things got so hot there that he had to get out of there in a hurry. They were ready to go after him as well. Isn't it ironic how conversion changes a man. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And he who once persecuted the church is now preaching Christ as the Messiah, Christ as the Son of God, Christ risen, and Christ the Savior of men. The resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity because it proves that Jesus is genuine. Beloved, you can find no more solid proof than the conversion of people that Jesus Christ is in fact the living Lord. He's not just some any other religious leader who's dead and gone today and buried like so many others. No, my friend, he is exactly who he claims to be. And do you know that for this purpose, you cannot ignore Christ. You cannot buy into this idea. Well, he was a good teacher. Well, he was a good man, but there have been so many of those. No, you simply cannot do that. Christ will not be ignored. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of men. And I suspect that really this was the exact point that, that the Apostle Peter was trying to make in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Let me read you a verse from Acts chapter 2, verse 36, because he characterizes Jesus in a very interesting way. Chapter 2, verse 36, he says this to his audience. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, both Lord and Christ, the same Jesus. He rose from the dead, the same Jesus. And do you know, my friend, besides just claims to being the Son of God, besides just claims to rising from the dead, he made a claim to being the only Savior of men. John chapter 14, verse 26 is the verse that we want to consider. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, you cannot ignore Christ. You ignore him to your own peril because he is the Son of God. He is the only Savior of men. And he offers salvation to you and you ignore him at, his own, at your own peril. You cannot ignore Christ. The resurrection of Christ demonstrates that he is exactly who he says he is. Well, that's a great segue to our second point. What's another reason that Christianity is the, uh, that, that, that the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity? First of all, because it proves that Jesus is genuine, but secondly, it proves that judgment is coming. It proves that judgment is coming. You know, again, when you look at what Paul's preaching was, when you look at what he, the truth that he laid out before people, this is unmistakable. 
Go forward for with me for an example back to Acts chapter 17 for a moment. This is another record of one of Paul's great discourses when Paul went into Athens and he was troubled because he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. And he had the great opportunity to address the Athenians there on Mars Hill. And when you get down to verse number 30 of Acts chapter 17, it says that the times that he says, the times of this ignorance, this idolatry, all these things, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath appointed, in that he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. The resurrection is the great assurance that, that Jesus is who he says he is and that God is going to bring men to reckon for their sins. If we go back to chapter 24, that's the chapter that I, I referenced before where Paul was appealing to Felix. It's there again. Look at chapter 24 and verse number 25. And it says, as, as he, that is Paul, reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. The three parts of his message were righteousness, temperance, that is, self-control, but judgment to come. See, Paul wasn't afraid to preach about this because he knew what the resurrection of Christ meant. He meant that God was going to call men to a day of accountability. And so he reasoned with Felix about this. And in verse 25, he says that Felix trembled and answered, go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Don't you wish that Felix had done more than to tremble? Don't you realize, don't you wish that he had asked Paul what to do about his predicament, what to do about the fact that judgment was coming and that he was a sinner who needed to be saved? But he said, go thy way, I will hear thee again at a more convenient time. But you see the point, right? That constantly, as Christ, as Paul, rather, in his preaching, is affirming the resurrection of the dead, he is also segueing into the fact that this means that men will stand before God one day, more particularly when we get to the book of Revelation and we actually look at the description of that day, we find that men are called to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so this is what Paul is preaching about to Agrippa. This is why he says that my past was this, my present is this, and what changed me was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now he is appealing to Agrippa as well, whether it was to the Athenians at, at, at Athens and Mars Hill, or whether it was to Felix, or in, on any other occasion when Paul preached the gospel he was appealing to men to repent and believe the gospel. Here, look in your text in chapter 26, and you'll see it here. Verse 20, But showed first unto them at Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. There it is, my friend, that they should repent. Why? Because there's coming a day in which God is going to judge the world in righteousness, as he told the Athenians. I want to show you something from this chapter that, that might you might find sort of interesting. It, it may not be complete insofar as all the reactions that people have, but in the sense of the story that's have here, it's, it, that we have before us in chapter 26, it's kind of interesting that you can actually find three reactions to the resurrection. 
First of all, you have the reaction of Festus, who thought Paul was crazy. He, he found it troubling. Look down in verse 24 in your text, and it says, And as he, that is Paul, thus spoke for himself, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Thy much learning hath made thee mad. In other words, he got so troubled, he got so uncomfortable as Paul was preaching that he was under such conviction that he, he, he was ready to stop right then and there. He interrupted Paul and said, you're crazy. So that's one reaction, I suppose, that, that people have when they hear about the resurrection. They discount it and figure that the person who's preaching so passionately about this truth has just got a loose screw. Well, Agrippa was cut out of a little bit of a different bolt of cloth, which is why Paul was so excited about being able to give his testimony before Agrippa that day, because he knew that Agrippa believed the prophets. He knew that Paul was acquainted with all of the religious customs and matters of the day, and he also knew that Paul was acquainted with the story of Jesus. He says in the chapter that these things were not done in a corner. So what reaction did Agrippa have? If, if Festus found it troubling, Agrippa found it intriguing. You know, when you go back to chapter 25, this is when Festus is telling Agrippa about Paul. And, you know, you just get the sense when you read this verse that right from the very beginning, Agrippa was really interested in hearing Paul. Verse number 22 says, Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. And Festus responded, Tomorrow thou shalt hear him. Then you notice when we get to act to chapter 26 and verse 1, it's not Festus who takes the initiative, even though Festus is sort of running the show. It's Agrippa. And in verse number 1, Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. So here was a man who was sort of looking forward to the opportunity to hearing Paul. And as this unfolded, Festus became uncomfortable. He was troubled by what he heard, and he he, he ended up calling Paul a, a crazy, but Agrippa was not that way at all. Agrippa was a person who found what he heard intriguing. The only problem was he didn't find it quite intriguing enough. When we get down to verse number 28, you find his, his response to Paul. It's nothing like the offense that, or the response that that uh, that Festus had. It's It's really polite. It's really somewhat deferential. He says unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost thou persuadest, you're so persuasive that almost you convinced me to become a Christian myself. Well, don't you wish it had gone further than that? Well, here are two reactions then. There's one man, Festus, who finds what he hears troubling. There's another man who finds it intriguing. But there's the man who's the preacher that day. There's the man who's giving the defense. And that man is the Apostle Paul. And the only word you can really use to describe what Paul thinks about the resurrection is he finds it absolutely compelling. This is the whole thing that we've been seeing so far in our first couple of points. That's why it's so interesting to see how in the chapter he's talking about his past. Then he's talking about his present. He's been transformed going from the foremost opponent, as it were, of Christianity to its foremost missionary. 
And sandwiched between is the explanation of why that he has met the risen Christ and realizes that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of men. And as he begins to preach this message to others, he calls them to repentance because he realizes exactly as he says to the Athenians, there is coming a day of reckoning. You cannot ignore Jesus Christ one day. The Bible tells us so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We will stand before God, and if we have ignored Jesus Christ, if we have only found his words troubling and rejected him, if we have only found his words intriguing and not gone further, it will not be sufficient. For Paul, it was absolutely compelling. He understood, and that's why he was the dedicated missionary that he was. He says to King Agrippa, if you have your, your Bible, just look down at what he says. I, I think that, uh, to me, this is one of the most powerful statements that Paul makes, verse number 19. He says, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. It was compelling. He spent his entire life proclaiming the risen Christ. You see, where that leaves you and me, beloved, is you and I must join Paul. You and I, you and I, in our response to the claims of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we cannot be like Festus, who, who merely finds it intriguing. We cannot be like Felix, who finds it concerning, troubling in the same way, really, that, that Festus did, because he said, go thy way, and in a more convenient season, I will hear thee. We cannot be like Agrippa, who was almost persuaded. We have to be like Paul, who was altogether persuaded. I'm sure you realize that many, many sermons have been preached from that text. Those words of Agrippa, when he says in verse 28, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. In fact, we actually have a gospel uh, song. It's in our hymnal that we use there at the church. It was written by P.P. Bliss, the well-known gospel musician, uh, and it's entitled Almost Persuaded. You know, there's an interesting story. I've often said that almost all of these songs have some type of story behind them, and the story behind this is, is that that P.P. Bliss had already become something of a, of a well-known uh, gospel music commodity, so to speak, but he was sitting in an evangelistic service one day, and the man who was speaking was a man by the name of Brundage. And Brundage quoted this exact text from Agrippa, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And he made this statement, He who is almost persuaded is almost saved. And to be almost saved is to be entirely lost. Do you know that Bliss found those words so compelling that as he meditated about it afterwards, he wrote this song. The first stanza goes like this, Almost persuaded now to believe, Almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, Go spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. And then I like the words of the Texas pastor and evangelist Herschel Ford. He put it this way, the tragedy of Agrippa was the tragedy of the almost. 
He almost repented of his sin. He almost accepted Christ. He almost became a child of God. He almost entered the kingdom of heaven. He missed heaven and glory because he was simply almost persuaded. Are you in the company of the almost or the altogether? So, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. It is because it proves that Jesus is genuine. It is because it demonstrates that judgment, there is going to be a day of judgment, that judgment is coming. And now consider with me the last thing that I'd like to draw to your attention today. The resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity because it proves that Satan is defeated. My, what a grand truth that is. And Paul touches upon the, the idea or the subject of Satan in this address to Agrippa. Doesn't say much, but touches upon it. If you look in your Bible in verse number 18 of Acts chapter 26, he says, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. I want you to think with me just a moment about the power of Satan and how the power of Satan was working in the ministry of Christ. I'm sure that you and, and many Christians, I know I, have puzzled over this at times, because do you are we really to believe that Satan thought that he could vanquish the Prince of Life? And yet it would seem from different verses in the gospel story and elsewhere in the scripture that Satan was abundantly involved in trying to destroy Christ, to hinder his ministry, and to snuff him out. What in the world was going on? How did he think he could possibly succeed with this? Many people think, for example, in the uh, the story um, of the, the great wind and the storm that arose in the Gospels were told about this. And Mark's account in chapter 4 is particularly interesting when the wind arose and the waves arose and Jesus was asleep in the in the, the stern of the boat on a pillow. And when the disciples cried out and Jesus, uh, they said, carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus arose. And in the Bible tells us he rebuked the winds and the sea. And of course, our text says, peace be muzzled was what he says. And I've often explained to you before that the Greek is a little bit more sharp. It's, it's like, hush, be muzzled. And many people have thought that what this infers is, is that that Jesus recognized in this storm and in these winds and waves an effort on the part of Satan to snuff him out. Other people think that that's exactly what Satan was trying to do in the in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse uh, 7 has the verse that many people, uh, many people have identified this idea. It says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. So uh, some people think that that's exactly what Satan was trying to do in, in, the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he was trying to, to kill Christ before he could get to the cross. And, and whether that's what it's talking about in the verse or not, we do know for a fact that when it came time for the end, it came time for the cross, that Satan was intimately involved in that. Uh, some verses, for example, when Jesus is on the evening in which he was arrested and, and the, 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 the mob and the Jews came and the soldiers and Jesus said to them, this is your hour in the, and the power of darkness. That's Luke 22 and verse 53. John chapter 13 and verse 2 tells us that 
Satan put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Christ. And later in the chapter, in verse number 27, just as Jesus had given him the sop, it says that Satan went entered into him. So we know that Satan was intimately involved in all of this, trying to oppose Christ, trying to snuff out Christ. But it, it presents you with the conundrum, the, the question to think to yourself, did he really think he was going to be successful in opposing the Prince of Life? Especially when the demons seem to know better. Uh, we have a, an interesting scripture to this effect in, in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, when uh, Jesus uh, confronted the man who was possessed with so many demons, and when, they, when, they, when, they, when, the, when the man came to Jesus and the demons spoke, they recognized Jesus for who he was. And in chapter 8, verse... Uh, uh, let's find our verse here. Chapter 8, verse 29 is the verse that I'm looking for. It says... They cried out, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come to torment us before the time? So it's like the demons themselves recognized who Jesus is. They recognized his superiority. They recognized that there was going to come a day of reckoning even for them where they would be bound and, and put in the place of torment forever. So what was Satan doing? Did he really think he was going to be successful in snuffing out the Prince of Life? Or maybe it's not that at all. Maybe there's another idea. Maybe, maybe Satan is just so perverted and wicked that he would, he would, would inflict any blow. He would stab however deep. He would do anything he could to oppose and hinder the work of Christ, even if he knew that ultimately he could not succeed and, could, and that Christ would be victorious. Is this what's going on? I don't know, beloved. These are just different ideas, but it's a puzzling thing. Either way, here's what we really know. We know that from Friday to Sunday, the ransom was paid. Jesus told the disciples, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The ransom was paid there on that cross of Calvary. We also know that the debt was canceled. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul tells us about this. He says that there on the cross, Jesus blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Just think about it, my friend. All those sins that Jesus paid for on that cross, blotted out and gone forever, the debt paid. The ransom was paid, the debt was canceled, and Satan was crushed. Even if we go back to the very first time in the Bible that we find any mention of the gospel, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we find that that's exactly what is promised is going to take place. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God says this. He says, I will put enmity, he says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan was crushed. It's an altogether different thing to inflict an injury on someone's heel and to crush their head. And that's the difference. See, Satan was able to inflict a blow to the heel, so to speak, on the cross of Calvary but in so doing actually accomplished the plan of redemption, allowing Christ to go to the cross exactly as he intended to, to there to pay the penalty for our sins so that the debt might be canceled 
the ransom paid and Satan is crushed because of the work of Christ on Calvary and his subsequent resurrection on that first Easter Sunday morning. You see, the resurrection proves that Satan is defeated once and for all. So, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. It's the linchpin of Christianity because it proves that Jesus is genuine. It proves that judgment is coming. It proves that Satan has been defeated, that our salvation is real. So, so to come back to what I posed at the outset, here's what we can say, beloved. You know, Christianity is just fine. Christianity is not in any danger of the wheels coming off. Christianity is just fine. In fact, every time I, I think about this subject and talking about the fact that Christianity is the lynch, uh, the, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity, I think about a story that I encountered years ago when I was a, a junior in college, actually, and was studying uh, at each semester um, Bible doctrines, and the, the textbook that we used was written by the man by the name of H.C. Thiessen, and it was called Lectures in Systematic Theology. And one day I encountered in his discussion of the resurrection a story there about two men, two Englishmen, who were 18th century figures, one of them's name was George Littleton. Sometimes he's known as, as Lord Littleton. He was Oxford-educated man. He was a member of Parliament uh, and highly intellectual individual. And the other man's name was Gilbert West. And Gilbert West was also Oxford-educated. He was a lawyer and a poet. Uh, these men were skeptics, and these men did not believe Christianity and actually got together in an attempt to disprove Christianity they came to the realization of something. They came to the realization that if you could disprove two things, if you could disprove the conversion of Paul, and if you could, if you could disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the wheels would come off. Christianity would fall flat on its face. Well, they took the challenge. This is exactly what they did. They went their way. Lord Littleton went his way to try to disprove the conversion of the Apostle Paul, and Gilbert West went his way doing separate study on his own in order to try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know what set these men apart was that they were honest scholars. It's, it's so different from so much of what we see of scholarship today. These men were honest scholars, and as they confronted the evidence, they became more and more convicted, each in his own right, they became more and more convicted that what they were looking at was absolutely true. Do you know that this thing ended with both of them becoming believers? It ended with both of them writing a book to uh, preserve uh, the research and the findings that they, that they did. Um, Lord Littleton's book was written and produced in 1747. It was called Observations on the Conversion and the Apostleship of St. Paul, and Gilbert West's book was The History and Evidences of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both men became believers. Yes, beloved, Christianity is just fine. Christianity is in no danger whatever of the wheels coming off. And you and I today, as we celebrate Easter Sunday, are rejoicing in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. If you look back again, to where we were at the very beginning of this message, this is exactly what Paul is talking about. 
He is defending the hope that was made to the Jews and subsequently in the scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament is being made to every believer today, the hope of the resurrection. But you see, when Christianity talks about hope, it's not like the world when people say, I hope so, but they have no basis whatever for knowing whether that will happen or not. No, Christian hope is certain. Our hope is based on the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now Jesus says to us, in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, as he prepared his disciples for his departure in the Upper Room Discourse, he said, Because I live, ye too shall live. So today, gathered as we are, thinking about Easter Sunday, let us know that our salvation is real, that that ransom has been paid, that debt has been canceled, that Satan has been crushed. Let us know that our loved ones who have gone on before us died in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, that one day the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not pie in the sky. This is the hope of the Christian. May the Lord bless you this Easter Sunday. May the Lord shorten the time in which we have to be absent, the one from the other, due to these coronavirus constraints. But as we are, may we read the scriptures, may we be consoled, and on this day in particular, may our hearts be overwhelmed and heartened by knowing that Jesus Christ is risen today. God bless you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to spend some time together rejoicing and remembering the Easter story and the importance of the resurrection. Help us to be comforted by the certainty of its truth, blessed and informed in our daily living by knowing that one day we shall see this very same Jesus, which was taken up from you, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. This same Jesus. God bless us each today. Keep us safe through this time of pandemic, and restore us to each other in your good time. For I pray in Christ's wonderful and holy name. Amen. Good day and happy Easter and God bless you.